If you have a Bible available for yourself, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we will be looking at just one verse from Matthew chapter 6 here in just a moment. As uh, Alyssa has already indicated, we are now into the second week of Advent, and uh, as we make our way into Advent, we have uh, sort of a, a large goal, and that is for us to learn how to practice uh, the presence of God in our life in a, um, in a special, uh, very personal uh, and transforming way. And so um, Advent is all about anticipating God's presence, right? It's, uh, it's about looking forward to the time when uh, God will be present fully again with God's people. And it's also about uh, remembering when God's people in history were uh, looking forward to God's uh, entry into humanity, the, the birth of Jesus. And so uh, all of that is happening uh, in Advent, anticipating, remembering, practicing uh, the presence of God. And the way that we are going to get at that uh, this season is by thinking together and learning together about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, sometimes the Lord's Prayer uh, is called the Disciples' Prayer because it's the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And we all have a certain level of familiarity with the Disciples' Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, uh, and we want to use that familiarity and then go just a little bit deeper uh, with that. And we also want to say that the Lord's Prayer isn't just something that we can uh, memorize or recite, but that this actually becomes the place where we can experience this presence of God, uh, the advent of God coming into our life and into our space uh, even today. So all of that is in view uh, through this season of Advent. And we're going to begin that by thinking today, first of all, uh, about this one little verse in Matthew chapter 6. So Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and this is how he opens that teaching. He says, when you pray, and um, and again, we said that the, the, the when you pray piece is um, not sort of a wishful deal, right? It isn't if you should happen to pray or uh, if you um, suddenly um uh, find yourself praying when you least expected to, uh, but there, there's a uh, this is a commandment, right? This is the language of command and intentionality. That when you pray, have a practice of prayer, and when you engage in this practice of prayer, begin like this. And this this is what he says: When you pray, uh, pray like this: Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. Our Father in heaven. May your name be honored. And we're going to let that verse also be our opening prayer. Because our prayer is that as we engage with that teaching of Jesus, that God's name would be, in fact, honored. Sometimes the uh, Bible that you're reading uh, says, may your name be made holy, may your name be um, glorified, uh, may your name be um, um, honored, may your name be recognized. He starts this prayer with this idea of God as Father. And uh, we need to uh, pause and think about that for just a few minutes. What does Jesus have in mind right, when he says, our Father? What is that all about? Uh, Father is such an evocative image for us, right? Uh, if we went around the room today 
everyone here would have just a little bit different uh, picture, image, uh, in your mind about what is happening here with this idea of father, right? Um, it's almost impossible to hear the word father and not think about your own father, not to think about your own dad. And so uh, the image of your own childhood, your own dad, uh, your own uh, relationship with your dad is automatically in the space when you say the word father, when you hear Jesus uh, use the word dad. Uh, it's, a, it's a powerful image uh, that, that evokes the presence of your own father, right? Uh, and uh, with all of that being true, and I think Jesus is very intentional about that, that uh, there, there's intentionality by, by using such a personal, evocative, powerful image uh, that's so universally true. We all, Whether it's good or bad or indifferent, uh, painful, joyful, whatever the experience is, we all have some experience with this, this image of Father. Uh, but the experience that we have with the image of Father uh, isn't all that we can mean. It isn't all that Jesus can mean when he's using the language of our Father in heaven. Uh, it isn't just uh, your dad that he has in mind. Uh, and when the disciples hear Jesus say the word Father, certainly they're doing the same thing that you are, right? And they're all thinking, Dad, my experience with Father. But the disciples' experience with Father is probably very different than ours, right? Uh, uh, living in their culture and in their time in a Hebrew uh, household, uh, uh, in a uh, in a Roman uh, under Roman occupation, uh, in all of in all of the bits and pieces that go with that, and the and the life that they have to live in that condition, uh, their experience and their understanding of household and family and father is very different than ours is, and 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 so uh, whenever we read the word father, whenever we do uh, uh, biblical interpretation, we have to build some bridges. So this morning we want to build a bridge back to. Uh, this moment where Jesus is sitting there with his disciples and he uses the word father, he uses the word dad to describe God. Build the bridge back there and say, what is it that Jesus has in his mind? What is the image that Jesus wants to evoke? Right alongside of all of the images that you already have, but what is the image that Jesus wants to evoke and to, and to highlight? What, what switches get turned on for Jesus and for his disciples when they hear the word father? And the first thing that we want to say is uh, when Jesus uses the word uh, our Father in heaven, um, he's using temple language. He's using temple language. Uh, and that might be very different from the image that comes to your mind. Uh, chances are that whatever you are thinking about with the idea of dad, uh, thinking about the temple in Jerusalem probably wasn't even on the short list. Uh, but when Jesus' disciples hear the language of our Father in heaven, uh, temple language probably would have been towards the top of the list. A temple uh, was uh, one of these sort of common experiences uh, that Jesus and his disciples would have shared, not only together, but with all of the other uh, uh, Hebrew people as well. Uh, temple uh, is right at the very center of Jewish spiritual life, right? Uh, Jesus and his disciples went to the temple to pray. Uh, they went there together, and then even after Jesus' death and after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are still described as going to the temple to pray. Uh, this, the, the temple is important uh, in the life of Jesus and his disciples, and the language of Father in heaven uh, evokes that picture of temple. 
And here's why that matters. You can say, well, why in the world does that matter? Why, why does that matter to me? Here's why that matters. Because the temple itself then has incredible significance. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not just a reminder, but it is the actual presence of God. Right, uh, the temple isn't just a reminder of God's presence. It's not just like a, a, a mnemonic device that helps us to remember. Oh yeah, God uh, said something about wanting to hang around. But the temple itself is actually the place where God is present with God's people. Uh, it's this, it's this sort of sheer physical uh, monument to the presence of God, and therefore to this to this incredible idea that we have a God who wants to be with his people. Right? We have a God who wants to be present with his people. And so this is an idea, it's a central theme that runs all the way through Scripture. Right? There, there are just a handful of themes that go all the way through the Bible from the beginning to the end, uh, like a thread that you can trace from one end of the story to the, to the other. And that, and that idea of God wants to be with his people, God wants to dwell with God's people, that's one of those threads that runs all the way through the story of the Bible. And, and, and we just see it from right, right from the very beginning when God, uh, God creates this, this garden paradise and he invites uh, uh, people to live there in the garden. Uh, it isn't so that God can be removed from them. But if you remember all the way back in, in the opening chapters of Genesis, God is there walking with God's people in the garden of Eden. He walks with them and he talks with them, right? And, and there's a sense of intimacy and, and, and this experience of fellowship that Adam and Eve have with God dwelling there in their midst. And the great tragedy of the garden uh, isn't just that they uh, no longer have access to the, uh, you know, the luxurious and tasty fruit, but the, the great tragedy of the garden is that they've now been removed from the presence of God, right? That's, that's sort of like the, the turning point uh, in human history. Uh, and then if you go on into uh, uh, Exodus, you see that once again, as, as God's people are uh, coming uh, up out of Egypt, out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt, uh, that, that the whole idea of Exodus turns on the idea that God is coming with them. Right? God is on the move with God's people in the story of Exodus. And so uh, Moses gets really detailed uh, instructions about how to build a tabernacle. Right? And it's like a big, fancy tent, and God lives in the tabernacle uh, and moves uh, through the wilderness with God's people. Uh, and then uh, you get into Leviticus, and in Leviticus you, you have this almost a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to saying, because we have a God who wants to dwell with us, because God lives here in this place, uh, we have to understand how to honor, how to, how to, how to, to make God's name holy in this place? How do we honor the name of God who lives with us? And so Exodus is this really detailed code and system that describes how do we honor the name of God uh, who dwells with God's people. Uh, if you go on into the prophets, uh, the voice of the prophets stand as the presence of God speaking to God's people. God is engaging with and interacting with the prophets uh, through the prophets with the people of Israel as they navigate through life and through history. Uh, if you go into the Gospels, uh, in the Gospels, uh, we sang the word already today. Jesus is described as Emmanuel, that Jesus is the presence of God 
with God's people, that Jesus represents God's desire to dwell with you. Then if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, right? if you go into the book of Revelation, what's the end game? Where is all of this heading? Well, if you, if you, if you start with a God who wants to dwell with God's people, uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising at all that if you follow that thread all the way through, that the end game is that we have a God who dwells with his people. right? That God comes and, and says, now uh, it isn't just that if you've been really good, you all get to go to heaven. That isn't the end game. The end game is, in the Bible, that God's dwelling place is now with you. right? It isn't just that when you die, you go to heaven. It's at the end of history, the end game is that God comes and lives with you. And that the dwelling place of God is finally in the midst of and among uh, God's people. So this whole story of the scripture just resonates with the idea that we have a God who wants to be with you and that there's nothing that will stop him from doing that. And the temple stands at the very center of that story. And it's almost as if everything that comes beforehand the garden and the tabernacle and the fire and the clouds and everything that comes afterwards is pointing back to the temple that stands there in the very center of that story. That place where God is present with his people. And so that temple is a very specific, very carefully prescribed version of God's presence. Uh, You might even say it's a very limited version of God's presence, right? It's not just anybody that can go waltzing into the presence of God. Uh, There are very careful restrictions and limitations that say that, um, you you know, you you can get sort of close, but not too close. You can come up to the perimeter. You can look at it, but you can't go near. There there are all of these uh, uh, um, safeguards and, 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 and deals that keep people safe from the presence of God. And it's only on one day that one person can go into the very presence of God, right? And even then, you tie a rope on this guy, and if something goes wrong, you have to be able to pull his uh, his corpse out of there because going into the presence of God is dangerous business. And so uh, the temple is the presence of God, but it's a limited, specific, very carefully uh, um, 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 protected version of God's presence. And now Jesus is sitting down here, in the shadow of the temple, and he's saying to his disciples, you can do right here and right now the very thing that the temple has always promised. You can say, our Father in heaven. You can evoke the very presence in the name of God. You can do right now what the temple promised, what the temple represented, you can enter into the presence of God. In other words, Jesus is saying that in his life and in his ministry and in his work, he is going to fulfill the requirements of going into the presence of God so thoroughly and so completely that not only does he gain access for himself, but he can give access to you as well. And you can say, the very prayer that Jesus prays. You can say, our Father, in Jesus' um, language, Abba, Daddy, right? Dad, 
Our Father who's in heaven, help me to honor, help, help me to make your name holy. Help me to glorify your name. That's temple language that invites us right into the, the presence of God. So I want, I want to just pause there for a moment and, and think about some of the implications of that. When you pray, Jesus is saying, it's as if you are stepping into that holy space, into the presence of God. When you pray, when you go into the temple, when you do that, you're stepping into uh, what we can call a thin space. A thin space, right? I had a friend of mine a number of years ago uh, who, um, whose wife died. And we walked with Dave uh, in the days leading up to the death of his wife. And then uh, through the intensity of grief immediately following that experience. And then as the, the sort of the white hot intensity of grief began to cool, Dave said something that I've never, ever forgotten. This is what he said. He said, you know, whenever, um, whenever I stop and just sort of think about Carol. It's as if thinking about her and saying her name, uh, the, the space between heaven and earth just gets so thin. And he said, it's, it's like tissue paper thin. And that idea has never... Um, I've never forgotten that. In fact, every year, about this time of year, well, who am I kidding, a couple of weeks, when I start wrapping presents, um, I always, right, this is the time of year when this comes out, right? This is the tissue paper, right? It's, it's like there, it's just air, right? It's, there's almost nothing to it, very, very thin. And I honestly, I never, this, this is my nemesis. I never know what to do with this. I always feel like I have either too much of it or not enough of it. Does it go on top? Does it wrap around from the bottom? Do you just stuff it into bag? What? How? This is this is um, um, this is the one time of year, and I never have mastered uh, the tissue paper. But whenever I pull this out, right, you can almost you can almost see right through it. And I just and I start thinking about Dave's experience, and he says that space between heaven and earth. It's just tissue paper thin. It's just like that. Hardly anything. Hardly. Anything. You know how often when I think about God, I think about a God who is a long ways away? I think about heaven. Maybe you do too. I think about heaven, and I start thinking about, okay, I go outside at night, and I look up into the, you know, into the sky, and I see the stars, and I think about the galaxies piled on top of galaxies. And I think about how expansive and almost infinite space is. And then somehow in my mind, I've, I've constructed this sort of cosmology where I see, and then beyond all of that infinity, beyond that still is heaven. And that's where God is, right? That God is up in heaven somewhere. We use that language. If God is up there or the man upstairs, right? We, this idea of God... Is, is removed in a long ways away. 
And then when I pray to a God who's like infinitely removed in heaven, right? Uh, N.T. Wright says it's like taking an arrow and just shooting an arrow off into the abyss, right? I know I'm shooting it off, but I can't see where it goes, and I don't know if it lands. And it just seems like God is so far away, so distant. I don't know if you have that image or that experience, but it's not the picture or the image that the Bible invites us to have. And the scriptures, the, the, the place of heaven where God is, is all is near. Heaven is just simply the presence of God. Uh, it, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the place where God lives. And, 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 and Jesus says that the, 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 the kingdom of the heavens are near. And that the glory of God fills the universe not standing outside of it, but that the presence, the glory, the the light of God fills the universe and you. And it's, it's like God is in his heaven and it's just that close to you. God is just only that far away. And so prayer invoking the name of God, invoking the presence of God, saying Father, is entering into this thin space where God's presence can press in on me. And I can become aware of a God who is near. That's useful for me to think about when I think about people who have died. When I think about my own death. Prayer isn't just a matter about religious activity or ceremony or ritual. Prayer is a matter of life and death. And when I think about my own death, when I think about your deaths, I think about the funerals that happen right here, funerals that will happen here this coming year. I think about death. It's helpful for me to think about the division between where I stand now and where I will stand. It's just this. It's it's just thin. And this is just... It seems a lot less scary. If this is all that death is, it just seems a lot less powerful, a lot less ominous. Death loses its terror, loses its power. One of my favorite writers and teachers was Dallas Willard, philosopher. Dallas uh, died at 6 a.m. on Monday, uh, May 8, 2013. And there is a biography about uh, Professor Willard entitled Becoming Dallas Willard. It's written by Gary Moon. Describes uh, the moments before Dallas's death. At 4.30 a.m., a nurse came in to turn Dallas in the bed. 
her visit awakened Dallas's good friend, Gary Black, who was also in the hospital room with him. Moving Dallas awakened him too. Gary took Dallas's hand, and Dallas turned to him and told him to tell his loved ones how much he was blessed by them and how much he appreciated them. Then, as Gary described, in a voice clearer than I had heard in days, he leaned his head back slightly, and with his eyes closed, he said, Thank you. Gary did not feel that Dallas was talking to him, but to another presence that Dallas seemed to sense in the room. And those were the last words of Dallas Willard. Thank you, he said, to a very present and finally visible God. It's almost like that thin space where you go into the temple and it's a thin space and you say, our Father in heaven, and the world becomes a thin space. It just gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner until you just... Move to the other side of a tissue paper. Still close, but now standing with God. But here's the thing. Begin now to practice that presence. Begin now. So that when you do, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the weight of God pressing in on you is greater far than the terror of death. What is it like to experience God pressing in on you? What's it like to know the presence of God? Didn't uh, plan to talk about professors all morning, but Kate Bowler is another professor that I enjoy. She's a professor of the history of Christianity in North America at Duke Divinity School. Uh, She has uh, terminal cancer and wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies that I've Loved. Um, And she did an interview with NPR. And during the course of that interview, she was asked about how she managed to feel loved by God even in the aftermath of major cancer surgery. How do you experience the presence of God? This is what she described. It's like you notice the tired mom in the grocery store who's just struggling to get the thing off the top shelf while her kid screams. And you notice how very very tired that person looks at the bus stop. And then, of course, all of the people in the cancer clinic around me. That felt like I was uh, cracked open. And I could see everything really clearly for the first time. And the other bit was not feeling nearly as angry as I thought I would. And I mean, granted, like, I have been pretty angry at times. uh, But it was mostly that I felt God's presence. And it was less like, here are some important spiritual truths I, I know intellectually about God. There are four of them, and I have a PowerPoint presentation. It, and it was instead more like the way you'd feel a friend or like someone holding you. I just didn't feel quite so scared. I just felt loved by God. The presence of God just pressing in. When <laughs> Tammy was pregnant with Benjamin, our first son, we were planting a church in 
the Sacramento area. And so uh, he was born uh, between Palm Sunday and Easter, uh, which is great for church planters. And uh, because Tammy was our musician, she was on the platform and I was on the platform. But leading right up to that moment, um, when she was um, very much with child, <laughs> right? Um, she would she would strap her guitar on, right? And in the soundboard, that guitar would just lean right up against her belly, and she would play. And the and the vibration and the music of that sound, uh, Benjamin would respond to that. And, and, and he would just move and push his head, at least we think it was his head, right? Right, just right up against, it's like, I just want to get as close to that sound as I can, just pressing right up into it. The music created space for Benjamin to press in. The name of God, Father, Dad, Abba, is the lyrical and musical space that just draws God's presence right in. Practice the presence of God. Call to God. Know him in your life. I want to do one more thing before we wrap up so that prayer is not just a ritual or an activity, but it's a matter of life and death. Uh, That's the death part. Practicing God's presence. Here's the life part. Building the bridge. Remember, building the bridge to the word Father. Uh, Jesus' disciples would have heard Father, and they would have had temple images come to mind alongside the images of their dad. And they would have had a second set of images come to their mind. Um, And that has to do with the Exodus. So when Jesus says, our Father, uh, very seldom... Uh, in the history of um, the, 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 the Hebrew people, is the language of God and Father uh, used, right? Uh, more common, we find in the Psalms and the prophets and the history, more common what we find is that God is describing his people as his children, right? My sons. Israel is the son of God. And um, But this connection between Father and Son, Israel and God, uh, does get drawn out really clearly in the story of the Exodus, right? And so the way that that works is this, that when, 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 when Israel calls on their God as their father, knowing their secure position as God's son, what they realize is that this is their only hope, right? Uh, I, we're in slavery, we're in bondage, we're not going to be able to get ourselves out of this mess. There's nothing that we can do to be set free. Our only hope for freedom, our only hope is that we are God's children. We are the sons of God. And that's where they find their hope. That's where they learn what it means to belong to God. And so it isn't, it, it, it isn't just that God is our Father, and we have this sort of warm, uh, sentimental attachment, or we have this emotional, visceral response, but that there is a, a decisive hopefulness for freedom that we're calling on when we call God our Father.
And when you think about not just your death, but when you think about your life, when I think about my life, uh, there are places where I know that I need to be set free. Uh, There are places where I long for freedom, places where I am afraid, places where I am filled with shame, maybe rage, maybe loneliness, places of freedom that I long for but I can't get to on my own any more than the Hebrews could get themselves out of Egypt. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, this is the place where you can be set free. When, you, when God presses in, right, when you, when you sing God's name, when you say Father, you step into that thin temple space, you're not just, you're, you're, you're not just um, practicing the presence of God for its own sake, but that becomes a source of hopefulness and freedom for you. The power of God to set you free is, 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 is there as well. You can be free from all of the things that keep you from becoming the person that God created you to be and intends you to be. Let me conclude with this reflection on uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In that book, uh, Lucy and her brother Edmund and their cousin Eustace are taken uh, to Narnia where the Christ figure is a lion named Aslan. The three of them go on a voyage and come to the island where dreams come true. In reality, this is where nightmares come true. The ship's crew is overcome by fear, and they begin to wildly roll in the darkness. Each sailor hears a different terrifying noise, very personal fear, right? They're captive to this image of huge scissors or enemies crawling up the side of the ships or gongs that resonate deeply. So what does Lucy do? She prays. She calls on the name, Aslan. Aslan, if you ever loved us at all, she says, send us help now. And the darkness did not grow any less, but she begins to feel just a little, a very, very little bit better. A ray of light falls on the ship, and Lucy sees something in it like a cross. It's an albatross, and the albatross circles them three times, and it lands on their mass, and then flies ahead of them, leading their ship out of the darkness. And no one except Lucy knew that as the albatross circled the mast, it whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. It's the voice of Aslan. In a few moments, the darkness turned into a grayness. And then almost before they began to dare to hope, they shot out into the sunlight and were in the warm blue world again. And all at once, everybody realized that there was nothing to be afraid of and never had been. I think Lewis gets it right. That's our hope for living for being set free from fear. Aslan, Abba, Father, Emmanuel, step into that thin space where the presence of God presses in and you know the voice of God for your dying and also for your living 
for your living in hope. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, thank you for creating thin spaces for us where your presence is felt, where we are encouraged, and where we can live by hope. This Advent season, let us know your presence in our world, even as we remember that you came and that you will come again. In your name we pray. Amen. We are going to uh, come here to this table, which is also a thin space. Presence of heaven 